Well, here we are. Uh, there's something about a pastor's first sermon in a, uh, at a church and a pastor's last sermon at a church uh, that they have in common. And that is, in my experience, um, we have no idea what to talk about. <laughs> uh, on the one hand, uh, when you start out at a church, you, you don't know a church well enough to really know what, what you should say and what encouragement you can give to that congregation. And the difficulty on the other side of it is you know that church too well, uh, that there's so many things you'd like to say and yet nothing that seems quite worthy of that coveted farewell sermon. So I cheated. And I, I took encouragement from Paul. <laughs> Specifically, his letter to the church in Philippi. And the reason I did that is because I'm a big fan of Paul's. I think he was uh, a good guy. And of course, that's, that's an easy answer to say I'm a big fan of Paul's. After all, he wrote most of the New Testament. But that being said, what strikes me about his letter to the Philippians is his care for the church. His love for the church. Because he did care for the church, for those individuals within it and for the whole. Their spiritual needs, their well-being, and the part they played in the building of God's kingdom. And so his encouragement to them in knowing that they would be parted as part of God's plan was to remember all they had learned and to keep moving forward. I think that is a beautiful sentiment for us this morning. So we will be reading from Philippians 2, uh, verses 1 through 18, and this morning, as always, out of the ESV. And it reads like this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you. 
Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. So verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, and the list goes on. Now, Paul starts this passage with a hypothetical. Now, he's building on his argument from the first chapter. We know that, at least from that word, so. But he begins this hypothetical, and he says something which should be obvious to those who hear. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. And the reason I say it's a hypothetical is because Paul, the one who would have taught a number of these people about Christ, knows that each and every one of these things is true. First and foremost, if there is any encouragement in Christ. Of course there is. Uh, If there is any encouragement in Christ. Christ Himself being our Savior, the one who lived and died and rose again for our salvation. There is hope in Jesus. There is something that we can trust in with Jesus. If you're going to find encouragement in anything on earth, the best place to find that is in Jesus. So I don't think Paul's asking a question. I think it's obviously hypothetical. If there's any comfort from love, of course there is. If there's any participation in the Spirit, which he's assuming if we believe in Christ, if we trust in Him, then yes, we're participating in the Spirit. If there's any affection and sympathy. Now what Paul is saying in essence is if there's any, if there's any here that have faith, then this is going to be true. If there's any here that are part of the fellowship, these things will be true. If they heard the gospel and believed, putting their old lives in sin to death, if they are members of the household of God, then these things are true. Or from Paul's perspective, if they learned any truth from Paul, these things will be true. And the thing that will be true of them is that they will be united. He said that there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now it's interesting that he says, if you want to make my joy complete, be united. And it's almost as if there's a father here talking to his children. If you want to make me happy, and in fact, if you want to make my joy complete, let these things be true of you. And he says if, if there's any encouragement, any comfort, any, any spirit work in you, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being united. Know that this is the thing that Paul desires above all else, that they would be united in their faith. And the way he describes it is being of the same mind. Now, that's a difficult phrase. We don't say that very often Uh, today uh, we could say be in full agreement but he says that already he says in full accord this is be of the same mind that is be so unified in your way of thinking about your job not just your job but your purpose in belonging to christ in having the same love loving others to the same extent with that same desire that same love of christ be in full agreement and be of one mind Which is to say, you know, on a very simple level, agree with one another. Uh, I think on a more complex level, love one another. And of course, strive for unity. And of course, Paul doesn't leave it at that. He doesn't say, here's an idea, uh, an ideal for you to follow. This 
is what he says it should look like. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now I think even there, that's some incredible gospel transformation, isn't it? Don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. Now as a sinner, as a person born into the world, our natural desire is to pursue our own interests, to pursue uh, what best serves us. So when we talk about selfish ambition, it's one of those things that we celebrate in America. One of those things that if a person has ambition, they can go anywhere. If they have enough drive and a good enough work ethic, they are to be admired and promoted and everything uh, they deserve the best. And so we celebrate people. Our own president now can claim that he's a self-made man, that he earned his way and made his own position. There's a number of others who have followed that same example of, of making their way in the world. And yet Paul is saying that we as believers should, should do nothing from selfish ambition. Now I find that interesting. That's, that's not to say that we shouldn't be business people. In fact, I think Christians make some of the best business people. Instead, what he's saying is if we're going out and making decisions based on what's best for me, that, that at some point we're going to have a fundamental issue between that and our faith. Because what he says following that is not only... Uh, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But he says, then in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Now that's a difficult statement for a lot of us. And I think quite simply what Paul is saying is not simply that everyone's better than you. Always assume that you're worse than everyone else. Uh, as C.S. Lewis famously put it, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Uh, it's not this self-degrading, degradating sort of mindset that says, I'm horrible, I'm awful, and everyone's better than me. Uh, we're not promoting low self-esteem. Instead, what Paul is saying is that this ideal that we should follow is that if I see the value that Christ has put on others as being those worthy of his love, worthy of his death, worthy of his resurrection, then naturally I start to see myself as I should, as part of the gospel, as being equals with those that Christ has loved and won to himself. It's not this sinful attitude that I am the greatest of all creation. Uh, instead, it's that God has loved others and I see the value in others because if God can see it, as I grow in fellowship with the Father and with the Son, I should start to see that too. If you want to see that in another way, Paul says, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Which, of course, does not mean be interested in the things other people are interested because sometimes that's, that's frankly impossible. Instead, your interests are those things that you are obviously concerned with, whether it's the clothes you'll wear, the food you'll eat, the house that you have to sleep in, those things that you have to take care of. Uh, it's an easy thing for us to simply devote our lives to the things that we need to take care of. But Paul's saying, look, your needs, your interests are not the most important thing. In humility, see others as being valuable. And look not only to your own interests, but as you seek unity, as you seek to be humbled, look also to the interests of others. Now that's all well and good, especially if Paul had left it there. But unfortunately, as he often does, he doesn't leave it there. 
He says, if there's a mind that should be among you, if you're going to talk about this unity, this, this shared desire, in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is the beginning of his thought. Have this mind among you which is given to you through Jesus Christ. If there is going to be a mindset which is common among all of the brothers and sisters in this fellowship that we share in Christ, it should be this. That Jesus Christ, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What Paul does is he sets up a standard. If you're going to talk about humility, and humility which is thinking of others as being more valuable than yourself, you're not going to find a better example than Jesus Christ. I mean, we just came through Easter, which was a focus on the love that God had for us specifically expressed through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the reason I think Paul points to that is you're not going to find a better example. Jesus, who, if we recall from Scripture and everything we believe, is the Son of God. He was with God in the beginning. He is equal with God, chose to become a human being to take on flesh, to, uh, to be humiliated even in that, own, that way itself. Beyond that, to then be mocked and ridiculed, beaten, killed, the list goes on. That was Jesus. He was so humble that in a desire to show love to His beloved, He would humiliate Himself, be humbled, all to serve us. If you want to find another example, there's that beautiful example of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And, uh, of course, there's that one disciple who doesn't want Jesus to do it. And he says, look, if I don't do this, you have no part with me. Jesus, their king. This disciple could not tolerate the idea that their king, the one that they served, would get down in the garb of a servant and wash their feet, which was not something royalty did. How can the one that we serve do this for us? It's not right. It shouldn't happen. And yet, that's the humility shown in Christ. So when Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, nothing that Jesus did on the cross was out of selfish ambition or conceit. It was selfless and it was humble. He then says, you know, look not only to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Was it in God's best interest to be humiliated on the cross. No. No, it was if, if we wanted to give God glory, and that was it, if, if that was the chief end of God, to receive glory from His people, then it's an easy thing for Him to show up in judgment. Because the reality is, if we're going to talk about the sovereignty of God, how God can receive glory, then there's two different ways. One is if His people give it to Him willingly. The other is if they're so overwhelmed by the reality of God's glory that they can do nothing else but give Him worship. Now that's the second coming. Whether there are believers or unbelievers present, they will give God glory because when they see Him as He is, we'll have no other choice. So if we're just talking about what's in God's best interest, He makes everyone see things the way they are and put away lies and falsehood and misunderstandings in one instant. But that's not what He does. Instead, He chooses to seek the interest of His people to give them life, to give them hope, to give us purpose through Christ's work on the cross. Now, I don't like when Paul does that. 
I don't like when Paul says, if you want an example, look to Jesus. Because Jesus is a really hard example to follow. I don't want to be as humble as Jesus. I don't want to show love in the same way that Jesus did. That's not the life that I want for myself. And yet Paul's saying this life that you used to lead, this one that was led in sin, the one that would cause you to pursue selfish ambition and conceit is not the thing you should follow. But as you follow Christ, seek to be unified, be humbled, to see others' needs above your own. And follow the example of Christ who emptied Himself and made Himself a servant, who humbled Himself even to death, all that we might know the love of God. And that's the mindset that He says that we should have as we pursue life together. After going, he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ. And he gives this description of what Jesus has done. When he talks about unity in this sense, he's saying if you are going to be unified in one thing, if you're going to make my joy complete, be unified in the mindset of Christ, in the love of Christ, in the humility of Christ. And if you pursue that sort of unity, if you fight for that sort of unity, you will make Paul's joy complete. And I think as a person who cares for a congregation, I can agree with that quite a bit. If there's one thing I want to see from this church, it's that we fight for unity. That we pursue it. That we make it our end goal as we follow Christ. But of course, that's only the first few verses. After describing this humility of Christ, he says, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Of course, we have that hope of salvation. Christ, who would love us in such a way that He would leave, lay His down, life down for us. Christ, who suffered and died for us. Christ, who is exalted above every other name. That's some interesting language to say that there is no one in heaven or on earth, or as they say, even under the earth. No one who exists now or will ever exist who will not bow before the name of Jesus who will not see Jesus in His glory and recognize it and give Him praise and glory for it, whether in joy or otherwise. Every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, and all of this gives glory to the Father. In describing the work of Christ, the life of Christ, the love of Christ, the humility and obedience of Christ, as Christ is our example and our Savior, Paul gives this encouragement as I would give as well in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now we need to say a few things about that particular phrase uh, because there is that one. It says, work out your own salvation. Now some people would read this and see that, okay, there's something I need to do in order to make sure that I am saved. 
Now, wherever you fall on that particular theological spectrum, uh, we're not going to delve into this morning. Because I don't think the point is to get us to argue about what that means theologically, because I think it's fairly clear. Paul says, if there is one thing that I want, it's unity for this church. If there is one thing that I want you to pursue, it is Christ. As you have obeyed, as you have always obeyed, so now more so in my absence. His desire is that their obedience in Christ, as they've given since they've came to faith, should be something that they continue on in. It's because He cares for them. It's because He loves for them that He desires that they continue to obey Christ. Now, and also as He's leaving. He says, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. And then He says something interesting. For it is God who works in you, both to will and work for His good pleasure. So on the one hand, he says, work out your own salvation. On the other hand, he said, it's God that's doing the work in you. So if you're going to argue about it, you see both sides. But again, that's not the point. They should learn, sorry, as they've learned and obeyed Paul, they should continue to obey. It is not to save themselves, rather to continue to obey and seek the one who saves us And to do so with the gravity our salvation deserves. This is not something to be taken lightly. It's it's one of those things that I find to be true in my own life, and I think you'll find in yours, that the longer I go from the point where I knew I was saved, the less it seems to be impactful to me. So to put that in context, if you've heard my story, you know that I came to Jesus after trying to take my own life, which is one of those things where I have to understand that not only was my soul saved, but my life was saved. Not just my earthly life, but my eternal life. And I felt it in an instant. Now, some of us don't have that, that powerful a story. For me, though, it's amazing how I went from being effectively dead to being alive, and that's my story. And yet I can forget about that. I can, I can go days without remembering what it is God's done for me. And in those moments where I'm broken down and I realize God's work on, in my life is incredible. And the fact that God would save me in such an incredible way is, is amazing. And yet it becomes old news for a lot of us. That yes, I know I'm saved. Yes, I know God's done something incredible for me. Yes, I know I'm loved and and Christ died on the cross. It becomes uh, old news, or there's another phrase for it, old hat. I don't know why that's a phrase. But it's this thing where we can go on and on and on. And it's not that we forget that Jesus has done something incredible for us. It's this, that we've, we've gotten used to it. And the more we get used to it, the less impressive it is the less impactful it is it's it's if you want a good example when i grew up or when i was growing up in a in our room we had a black and white tv and so everything we watched was in black and white and i remember if you didn't have a a good reception you had to take that metal clothes hanger and find a better angle and then we tried wrapping the whole thing in tinfoil. And believe it or not, it worked pretty well. But I still remember you had the one knob that would get the channel, and then I had the other knob that you'd click, and I never figured out what that knob was supposed to do. <clears throat> and, then, and then I can go home and I can turn on the TV today, and it's going to be in color, and it's going to be in high definition. It is so far removed from what I grew up with that sometimes I can forget that 
Yeah, when I watched TV as a kid, I watched everything in black and white. Or when I wanted to make a phone call, I had to use the rotary dial because for some reason those are the phones we had. I still don't know how to use those well. Uh, and then we got the other one where you could push the buttons and that was pretty good, but you could only walk so far from the wall. Uh, for some people that I've met, they grew up for where cars were something you had to crank to start. And now you go in and you don't even have to start your car from <laughs> being outside. You can sit in your living room and push a button and it starts and it heats up for you. Things change. And sometimes we forget how much things have changed or how incredible those changes are. And none of those things compare to the people we were before we knew Christ and now to the people we are since Christ has been working in us. It's no small thing. And so for us, when we think of that hope of salvation as they have obeyed, as Paul desires that they continue as he says, to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. What he's saying is continue to pursue the one who has saved you in a way that you take seriously. And the reason he says that is not because you shouldn't take joy. When we hear that phrase uh, that it shouldn't be taken lightly, we think it should be something we're serious about, something that you can't smile about, and I don't think that's what he's saying. Instead, what he's saying is your salvation the life you lead in Christ is not something that's simply going to happen. Obedience to Christ is not something that simply happens. It's not, it's not that someday a, a switch is flipped and everything I do from that point forward is perfect. I'm your pastor, and standing before you, I can tell you that that's not me. And uh, I can tell from everyone that, okay, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> But the reality is none of us are perfect. That doesn't just happen. And it's not going to happen overnight. There's no perfect churches. There's no perfect people. And it won't be perfect until Jesus comes back or we join Him in eternity. That's the reality. If we are going to continue to chase after Christ, to pursue Christ, it will not happen on its own. But as Paul says, it happens in fear, in trembling. It happens as we desire those things, as we pursue those things, as we treat them with the seriousness that they should be treated with, that our salvation, the lives we lead in Christ, are something that we should be intentional about. And so not only should we strive or fight for unity, but we need to chase after Christ, to pursue Him, the One who has saved us, the One who gives us hope, and to grow in our knowledge of Christ, in our love for Christ. Without that, as Paul describes in verses 14 onward, we run into real trouble. But he reminds us that it's God who works in us. So it's not that we simply have to do all the work of making sure that we're following Christ. Because the reality is if we look back on our lives, there's a lot of things that God is already doing in us that wouldn't be possible if He wasn't. The fact that we're here this morning instead of sleeping in for a lot of us is a miracle. It's a work of God. Uh, I know that's true of me. I, you may not know this. I'm, I am not a morning person. Which is why I'm never the first person here on a Sunday. I'm not the last person, thankfully. Uh, at least there, there was one week. There was one week I was. That's not important. I shouldn't have brought that up. <laughs> but, but the reality is that we are going to grow and, and Christ is doing the bulk of that work. We've talked about that from the book of Ephesians. We've talked about that uh, throughout these past few years. But the reality is God is at work in us. 
which is an assurance of the fact that we belong to him. And I think it's also a reminder to obey the one who is at work in us. Because the work that he's doing, as Paul says it here, is both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That it is because of God's work in us that we can desire those things that God desires. And not only that, that we can act on that desire. So it's, it's one thing that God would achieve in me the desire to bring him worship. That's an incredible thing. That's a miracle. But that there would also be something in me which desires to act on that, to pursue that. It it might be something else. It might be that I feel a a desire that I believe is from Christ to go and to do something in, in the community. And that's a great thing to have that desire. But to act on that, that's not something we're born with. That's not something that we simply acquire as we follow Christ. That is due to the work that He is doing in us. So there is an encouragement as we embrace this difficult task of following Christ that because His Spirit is at work in us and He's working in us to do those things, that it's not so bad. It's not so hard. It's something that is achievable. Something that we should be devoted to knowing that it's God who helps us in that. The reality is our unity is essential. Our pursuit of Christ is essential. And as we're going to see in this next section here, it's essential that we keep moving forward. Paul says in 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now, First and foremost, it's not that the only two sins that we're going to be guilty of or potentially guilty of are grumbling and disputing. In fact, there's a number of of sins that we might be guilty of uh, beside those. But it's in light of what he's already said, in in light of his call to us to be united, in in light of his call on us to pursue Christ. These essential things is that we do all things without grumbling and disputing. It's going back to unity, that idea of unity. Because unity is a mark of God's people. It's not an optional thing. If people are going to say, what's different about this group of people? The biggest indicator, the biggest marker, the biggest thing that should say these people are different is that they are united, they are unified, and they are in agreement. They share the same mission. They they share the same love, or as Paul says, the same mind. And so the reason he says that is because it will distinguish us as those who follow Christ. As you've obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Continue to obey. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. Now if we want that idea that we are uh, being distinguished as God's people, you can see it there. He says, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. There's, There's a beautiful image there that in a dark world, in a world that is twisted and corrupt, we shine as lights when we pursue Christ and we embrace unity. Those things are a marker of us as His church. And there's the reality that as, as Paul is going, and now Paul, when he says he's going, it's a much different situation. A lot of these letters were written while he was uh, on house arrest. He had time to sit there and to write. That was true of the book of Ephesians. Uh, I believe it's true of Philippians, whether it was the same arrest or another. 
uh, Paul is, is writing this letter to the church because he thinks it might not, he might not have too many opportunities after that. In fact, if you go later in the book, he describes his desire to send people to the church of Philippi because uh, he knows that he himself is not able to go. In fact, Paul mentions at the end of the letter that it may be that he ends up dying for the sake of the church. As, uh, as he puts it, a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Paul knows that he will not be able to meet with this church again. He is embracing the fact that he may die, which is not at all the same situation we find ourselves in. Although it's true. I'm going to be driving a 26-foot truck on Tuesday. I may not make it. Now, that's morbid. I realize that. But Paul's being morbid, so it's completely fair, right? So he's saying that as you go, this is what I want you to do. This is what would make my joy complete. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Because in your unity, in your pursuit of Christ, you are blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. It is a marker of the church. He's saying continue to obey, continue to pursue those things because the reality is Paul knows that when he's there, he can speak to those situations. When he's there, he can address those concerns. And the reality is when he's not there, he has to trust in God that those things are going to continue, that they're going to continue to pursue unity and their faith. And they're going to be tempted to turn aside. He mentions that they live in a crooked and twisted generation. He knows that we tend toward grumbling and disputing and that our sinful nature is always there pulling us to be the people that we used to be. That selfish ambition, that conceit, that's the sort of lives we led before Christ. Grumbling, disputing, division, those were things that were true of us before we knew Christ. And so this, this sin starts as grumbling. It leads to disputes. And before you know it, this people that were unified are bickering and infighting. They are splitting apart. And this whole thing that Paul has strived for, this whole thing that Christ is building in them, instead of showing fruit, it starts to show cracks. And it breaks apart. And it causes people to think, well, then what's really true of this being a Christian thing if those people who know Christ can't even get along? if they don't even know how to love. And so it divides and breaks down the unity that Christ has built in us. And when that happens, we cease to be effective in everything that we do. And so Paul gives this encouragement. Don't grumble. Don't dispute. Instead, hold fast to the Word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. It's Paul's hope that even though he's not with the church in Philippi, that when Christ returns and those saints rise with Christ, that Paul rises with them and he sees those who belong to Christ and he can celebrate and give glory to God knowing that those things that he suffered for, those things that he poured out his life for, this people that he loved, followed in obedience, continued to follow, that God continued to work in them, that Paul then could give glory to God for his continued faithfulness and work in the lives of these people that God called him to preach to and to serve. 
It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? And maybe we haven't read this passage in that way of thinking, what is Paul's perspective here? Paul is is realizing, I will not be with this church. I do not know what things are going to happen. I'm trusting in Christ that He's going to take care of it as you play your own part in pursuing Him and fighting for unity as you keep moving forward. It's Paul's feeling that even if it means his life, in order to ensure their faith, he's glad to do it and he rejoices with them. And likewise, if they see those things happen, they should also be glad and rejoice with him. Now again, I'm not Paul. And I don't, I don't expect to be arrested or killed. So, I, I, I'm not going to say I associate with those verses necessarily. But there is that desire to see the church follow Christ that he's willing to lay everything down for. And that's where I hear it and I read it and I feel it. Our unity together requires dependency on Christ. And that desire for Christ comes through His work in us and our seeking after and obedience to Him. And so it's essential that we do not stop, that we do not turn aside, that we keep moving forward holding fast to the Word of life. Maybe you saw it in that passage, and if you didn't, that's okay because I'm going to point it out now. That we are to love and pursue Christ. That we are to love one another and to pursue unity. That we are to shine like lights and point people to the hope of Christ. Or if you want to put other words to it, love God, love one another, love our community. Paul's desire, even if it meant being poured out for the sake of their faith, is that their faith remained and that it grew, drawing them closer together and empowering them for the work of the gospel. And if it meant his life, he would rejoice. Now, the difficulty I'm facing is that I'm following a call to serve a community in need of a pastor. And if I didn't feel like that was God's calling us to move, we would not be moving. We have walked together through difficult things. And we've grown together, whether it's been in knowledge, in faith, in love, in maturity. And I believe that we are more united now than in years past. And it is my hope, my prayer, my deepest desire in Christ that we do not allow these past years to be for nothing. That we don't allow that growth, that change, that healing to be undone by sin, which as Paul describes, is done out of selfishness, out of selfish desires. Now who God has called to lead you may change. That happens. But what does not change is the call that He's placed on each and every one of us and on all of us as His church. The work continues. The mission goes on. He has faithfully led us to this point and He will faithfully lead us on. You are my friends and my family. And as you have followed, learned, and obeyed while I've been with you. So much more in my absence. Fight for unity. Chase after Christ. And keep moving forward. And as He works in you, and as you follow Him, Christ will lead, and His work will bear fruit if you do not give up or give in to sin. And so I'll say it again because that's my whole job up here this morning. Fight for unity. Chase after Christ and keep moving 
forward.